If you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 17 through the end of the chapter we'll read in just a few minutes. Um, now next Wednesday we'll begin a brand new series in the book of Romans. Uh, and if our time in Acts is indicative, we will we'll probably be in Romans for a long time. A long time. So uh, tonight we are kind of easing our way into the new year with uh, a message that I think is appropriate for this first week of the year. Next week we'll begin our time in Romans. It's, we'll have a great time. I, I haven't um, done a Bible study in Romans, uh, well, not, not in a long time. And I don't even know if I count that time that I did it. So uh, after so many, um, I, every a couple of years into my Every year or so, I, I look back in time and I just pretend like certain messages that came before a certain date didn't happen just because um, I, uh, I'm sure that they're not worth listening to. So thankfully, uh, the Lord uh, helps me uh, um, uh, improve and, and, and uh, be more faithful to his word and uh, teach his word more clearly. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to lead us through uh, the book of Romans. So don't miss out next week. We will probably cover the, fir the first half of chapter one if you want to read through verse 16 or so. Um, but tonight uh, we'll look at Ephesians and we'll turn over to John 13 in a little while as well. If you want to put a bookmark there, um, John 13, uh, we'll, we'll turn there in a little bit. So, so I know we're already a few days into 2022. But it's still early enough for us to talk about resolutions and goal setting for the new year. Maybe you've already made a lot of resolutions. Maybe you've, you've had to, to remind yourself of those resolutions because sometimes we forget them and we break them and we have to restart them. But that's okay. Uh, he gives more grace. And that's the, the, the good thing about our faith. Uh, but maybe you're the type to make resolutions. Maybe you're not the type to make resolutions. It's okay either way. You know, it's not a big deal to me whether you stay on that diet or whether you um, commit to doing that exercising routine. It'd be great if you did probably, but hey, I'm not a doctor and I'm not here to give that kind of advice, right? But if you've made some resolutions, that's great. If you haven't, maybe tonight we can make one. Um, it's, uh, let's just say that we had to make one. And again, I'm not making you, nobody's making you, but let's just say for, in, for, for this one time, for the next 30 minutes since you've decided to come here tonight, um, I don't think it will, be, it will be a vain conversation or it will be a wasteful conversation to, for us to consider this. Uh, let's just say that we as Christians should make one resolution for this year? What should it be? Uh, in, in fact, the Bible does, in fact, encourage believers to make resolutions. The Bible encourages believers to set goals and achieve those goals. Um, Psalm 76, verse 11, if you have not ever read this verse or memorized this verse, um, well, here's a chance to read it, but I would love for you to memorize it. Psalm 76, verse 11, David says, make your vows to the Lord, your God, and perform them. So that's a, that's a commandment, right? It might not be in Exodus 20. It might not be from Jesus or Paul, but David, as inspired as any other scripture, David says, make your vows to God and perform them. So this is as much of a nudge, I think, that we should need to consider what we need to vow or resolve to do this year, and let's make every effort that we can to perform it, to achieve it, to fulfill it. So tonight, since we're all here together, and I think it would be good for us to make a resolution together. So if you make your own individual ones, that's fine. But tonight we're going to make one as a collective. We're going to make one as a unit that we all will fulfill, hopefully, as individuals. Um, and I think it's going to be appropriate, and, and hopefully we'll find one that's appropriate for all of us to make, no matter where we're at in our lives. So we could go around the room and take suggestions, uh, but I think the best option 
uh, about what kind of resolution we should make, the best option for us is to look at God's word and let his spirit guide us. And so I began to pray a while back uh, and I began to seek God's counsel about what would be a good resolution for us to make. Specifically, I began to ask this question. What sort of New Year's resolutions should a Christian make? So not just anybody or any resolution, but what kind of resolution should a Christian, should a follower of Jesus, should a believer and a, you know, a follower of God, what kind of resolution should we, the people of God, strive to make? So the baseline is that we're all Christians or we are Christians, that we're believers, followers of Jesus, which I trust everyone here tonight is. And if you're not, or if you're listening and you're not, um, it's easy to become one. You put your faith in Jesus and he saves you from sin and he sets you on a new path for his glory. And as a Christian, I think that you as a beginner should have the same resolution that any of us, whether we've been following Jesus for a year, 10 years, or all of our life, I think that the baseline, the, 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 the common ground there for all of us is that this resolution should be, um, should be sufficient for all of us. Um, now, you'd think the answer to this question, what kind of resolution should a Christian make, you'd think it would be fairly easy to arrive at. But I'm sure if you polled a dozen Christians this question, if you ask a dozen Christ, Christ, Christians what kind of resolutions should a Christian make, I'm sure you would get maybe not a dozen answers, but you would at least get four or five answers. You would maybe get a few that overlap, but you would get a lot of different answers. And most of them would be biblical and most of them would be good, but I don't know if they'd be the best one or the one that I think God's word says we should make above all. Um, but I'll argue tonight, and I believe the Bible teaches that there is one resolution that stands above all the rest that every Christian ought to make. That if we had a direct audio line to God, we have a direct, you know, uh, you know, word from God. But if we could get a audio piped in from God tonight, if we could get him to speak to us clearly from heaven, what sort of resolution should a Christian make? I really believe, I really believe that he would say there's one resolution that I think all of you should make that is appropriate for Christians to make, whether they're five or 95, new believer or longtime believer. Now, I know I'm talking pretty lofty absolutes here, but I am confident, not because they're my thoughts, but I'm confident because God's thoughts are pretty clearly and frequently spelled out in the Bible. So what I want us to do, I want to walk you through this passage in Ephesians 4, uh, which I think, there, I, I think makes this universal resolution so very clear. And as we'll find out, this single resolution will open us up to a lot to discuss. So Ephesians 4, let's read verses 17 through 24 first, and then we'll break that down, and then we'll read 25 through 32, which is where we get our resolution from. So Paul has just been talking about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a church member, and now he gets to this, uh, he beckons us, he calls us to do a very specific thing. Verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. So translation, as a Christian, you should have a pretty good idea about what path you should take in life. As a Christian, you don't have to wander around wondering what is God's will and what should I do and how should I act. You don't have to be like the Gentiles who don't have a sense of direction, who just kind of make it up as they go. You can have a clear path in front of you. 
And then he, he, he details what it means to be like the Gentiles in futility, verse 18. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, uh, having given themselves over to lewdness, the work of uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned in Christ. So what is he saying there? That you don't have to be directionalist like the Gentiles who because of their darkened mind, because of their separation from God, and he's talking about Gentiles because these were people that were completely separate from the Jewish religion, no, no understanding of God, no Bible to fall back on, no direction from, from you know, the faith. Uh, he says these pagans, these non-believers, these Gentiles as they were, uh, they, had, they were alienated from God, they were blinded at heart, they had their minds darkened, they were given over to lewdness, uncleanness, and greediness. And, and that's not just certain people in certain parts of the world. That's all of us as sinners. That's all of us apart from Jesus. He says, but we're not like this anymore. You have not learned this in Christ. Verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So if you're a Christian, you've heard the gospel, you've followed Jesus, you have put off concerning your former conduct, the old man or the old person the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. So you're no longer bound by that selfish, lustful nature that you had as a lost, as a sinner, as a non-believer. You have put off the old person in verse 23, and you have been renewed in the spirit of your mind that God has given you his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit gives you a fresh mind and a sense of direction. Now, if this has piqued your interest, I hope it has, because maybe you're a Christian who you genuinely love Jesus and, and, and you want to follow God, but you would confess and say, Justin, I don't know how to answer this question. I don't know what I should resolve to do as a Christian above everything else. I don't know what should be my one goal. And if that's you tonight, and it's okay if it is, if that's you, the good news is you don't have to be, stay in that place. The good news is God is going to give us a clear path and a clear sense of direction. Verse 24, that you put on the new man, the new person, the new species that what, you know, Christian, which is bigger than your past, bigger than the identity the world's given you. The new person, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So are we on the same page? Paul's talked about where we were out of Christ. Now that we're in Christ, here is what should be our shared passion that will cause us to be like God with his righteousness and his holiness. Is, is, that, is that clear? Verse 24, that we might put on the new man created after God's image with true righteousness and true holiness. So if you want to live a truly righteous and holy life, Paul's about to tell us how we can do that. And I would argue that you could take the next, this next passage and you could overlay this passage. You could lay this passage on top of every other New Testament teaching. And it would summarize much of what is explained on every other page. I know that's a big statement, but it hasn't, Paul been pretty clear and pretty concrete here that I'm going to show you what it means to be new, what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be on his path. So verse 25, we find this shared resolution. Therefore, putting away lying, now, he's not just talking about specifically lying to people, which is, 
you should, of course, put that away. But he's saying, you're no longer betraying your identity as a Christian. You're no longer betraying, as a, as a new believer, as a new creation, as a follower of God, to live any other way is to betray who you are, is to lie about who you are, right? That if you're in Christ, you put off the old, you put on the new. So as a Christian, you should not continue to do things that are not becoming for a Christian or live a lifestyle that isn't becoming of a Christian. That betrays your identity, and it's lying about who you are. So nobody can say I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't know what I should be doing with my life or I don't know what I should do in general or, or you know, in broadly, broad, broad terms or how I should act or what I should do. Because Paul says, you know better, we know better. And if you don't know better, I'm about to show you, he says. So putting away line, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Let each of you speak truth of or to with regard to, and he's quoting the scripture from Zechariah. He's actually quoting, that's why in some of your Bibles it's italicized or it's in quotations. He's quoting an Old Testament prophet, which is in reference to the, the, the fulfillment of, of following God and being like God wants us to be. Let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, towards his neighbor, neighbor in, in relationship to your neighbor, for we are members of one another. So let me translate that for you if I can. Break it down in the simplest terms that I can. Paul says, let each of you be a living testament of truth to your neighbor. So if you want a sense of direction, here's what you should make your goal. I want to be a living testament of truth of what God says is the right way, the only way, the, the wholesome way, the godly way. I want to be speaking truth with my life. Specifically, he gives us a target, doesn't he? He doesn't just say, live right. He says, speaking truth with or towards or alongside your neighbor. He gives us a target. He gives us somebody to look at. You say, well, why, why should I be concerned or why should I be affiliated with and why do I have to, why is it about somebody else besides me? Paul says, because you're a member of one another. This is a whole side conversation that we'll dive into tonight. Paul says the reason why you should be concerned about them is because you are a part of something with them. And all of a sudden, it becomes a lot more clear as to why we should be concerned with what we do and how we do it, especially in relationship to each other. The command here is that all of our lives communicate God's standard Christian standards to everybody around us, everyone who, come in, who we come in contact with. God's will is that our lives be living proof of his gospel specifically in how we treat our neighbors. Now you may say, I don't know if I get that from that verse. Well, thankfully, the next few verses make it, I think, more clear. Look at verse 26 through 32. So he's gonna extrapolate, he's gonna explain what he means in verse 25, 26 through 32. So bullet one, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So he says, as you're trying to communicate God's word or God's truth or God's standard to your neighbor, here's one thing you should remember. Don't be angry and don't let your anger fester so that you might would sin as an extension of it. We've all been angry. We've also all been angry to the point that we've done something about it, haven't we? Paul says, no, 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 you can't do that as a Christian. 30, 20, 28, let him who stole still no longer, but rather him, let him labor working his hands 
with, with what is good that he may have something to give him who has a need. He says now that the way of the world is that you take what you can get and if it's not yours, you find a way to make it yours. But he says the Christian way is not only to work for yourself and earn your own living, but it's also to do it in such a way that you might have the opportunity to do good to those around you that you otherwise might have took from or ignored. Verse 29, let no corrupt words proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. So now, now no longer are our words our own business and what I say and what I do is nobody else's, uh, it doesn't impact anybody else. Paul says the Christian, what we say definitely impacts those around us. So rather than using our words for however we want to use our words, let us use our words in a way that considers who is hearing that we might intentionally impart grace to them. So do you see what Paul is doing here? He's opening our lives up to those who are around us for a very specific reason that we'll get into. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God who by, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamoring, evil speaking be put away from you in all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. So let each of you be a living testament of truth to your neighbor because you're members of one another. And he says, don't be angry. Don't sin against someone in your anger. Paul says, did you not know, and maybe you don't know, if you allow your anger to harbor, if you allow anger to harbor towards somebody, whether it's just or unjust, especially even if it's, even if it's justified, if you allow anger to harbor in your heart towards somebody, you become an agent of Satan is that what verse 27 says? Don't give place to the devil? I mean, I made it sound a little bit more you know, hard to hear, right? But that's what it means. If we allow anger to be harbored in our heart and we become and we use that anger against someone, Satan has made us his agents. Well, that's not any good. He says in verse 28, don't look for ways to take from others, but rather be ready to share with them. He says in verse 29, don't use corrupt or vile words which puts others down. Rather, use words that will build others up. So notice the intentionality here. Do you see that? Don't allow bitterness, vengeance, or slander to take root towards others, but rather be intentionally kind, compassionate, and merciful towards others. As God has been intentionally kind, compassionate, and merciful towards you. So if you had to summarize verse 26 through 32, if you would summarize what they are saying to us, these verses all clarify that to be in Christ, that what it means to be in Christ, and it mean, what it means to communicate his truth and display his grace, they all have to do with our interactions and behavior towards one another, don't they? I didn't put that stuff in there, right? It, it's there. Now, what did verse 25 end with? We are members of one another. So do you, see, do you see what Paul is saying that every Christian ought to always be doing? Now, here's the thing. Nobody can say, well, I don't know what God wants me to do this year. I don't know what God wants me to do with my life. God, Paul has made it so clear for us, hasn't he? He says, we ought to always be communicating the work of Christ, the work Christ has done for us through the work we do for others. That's what he's telling us, that we should always be communicating the work God has done for us through the work we do for others. Again, I don't believe there's a chance that we're misinterpreting this 
In verse 17 through 22, Paul says the old self is selfish, callous, and inward with greed and lust. And then he says that's not the way of Christ. We have a new self, a new nature, and we've moved past those falsehoods. And we've just, now we're called to display truth to our neighbors, the truth of God's perfect will for all people. And Paul anchors this as an outward expression of what it means to be a Christian. And he says, in Christ, we've stepped out of ourselves, out of our sin, into a greater body. And what is God interested in? God is interested in how we relate and associate with those in the body with us. You see, religion often makes it all about what we do directly to God and directly for God. But what Christianity does is, is it breaks down that fogginess and says, God is interested in what you do to others and how you do things in regards to others because that is a direct reflection of what you think about God and actually an extension of what you're doing for God. The New Testament message is clear. Our behavior towards others is the true litmus test of our beliefs in God. That is the New Testament message. Don't tell me what you believe. Show me through your behavior because your behavior will echo what you believe. Now, should you make much about what you believe? Of course you should. But if there is a disconnect between belief and behavior, then the beliefs are not that strong, are they? That's the New Testament message. And of course, this is the message that Jesus himself put on display. He told a parable about what life was like in the kingdom of God. He talked about how there were some at the judgment day that did all this sort of stuff out of kindness for those that were uh, uh, without and those that were in need and those that were in prison or those that were hungry or those that were in some way of, of, of suffering. And, and Jesus said, the master will say on the day of judgment, the king will say, I say to you, as you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. So what is the litmus test for judgment? that our response to others displays our belief. And God, and, and likewise, at the end of that parable, he says, inasmuch as you have not done to one of these, you did not do to me. So here it is stated clearly, we are members of one another. That's what verse 25 says. So therefore, as members of one another, do not be angry towards one another. Do not steal from one another. Do not speak cruelly or distastefully towards one another. Do not take advantage of one another. Do not mistreat one another. Do not hurt one another. Do you hear a, a common phrase there? Because you are members of one another. And if members of one another, you are members of the body of Christ. So, so, treat one another as Christ has treated you. Which verse 32 succinctly states. So need we look any farther for what every Christian ought to make as their New Year's resolution? If we could ask God, what should our resolution be that we might honor you the most? God would say what this passage clearly says. Treat one another like Christ has treated you. There are no asterisks. There are no excuses. There are no exceptions. The night before Jesus died, we're all familiar with the scene in the upper room, aren't we? How Jesus prepared his disciples for a world without him. And if you flip over to John 13, I want to show you a glimpse in closing, 
of a super powerful demonstration that we've looked at before, but that punctuates this statement. Treat one another like Christ has treated you. God, what is my resolution? What should my resolution be this year? That I treat one another like Christ has treated me. And there are no escapes from that. There are no exit ramps from that. Well, as, well, if they do something to me, then I guess I'm out or I don't have to. I'm not obligated to. We are to treat one another like Christ has treated us. There are no excuses. That, that's the Christian resolution. Again, we don't have to make this our resolution, but the New Testament makes it very difficult for us not to. John 13, 1 through 5. Now, again, you've heard this before, but hear it once again. Now, therefore, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew the hour had come that he would depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And, and you could also translate that. He began to show them the full measure of his love. The supper was ended. The devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and was going back to God, he, he realizes I am large and in charge. I'm the most powerful person in the room, most powerful person on earth. I come from God. I'm going to God. These people, they don't know who I am. They don't realize it. I could snap my fingers and you know, do away with them. I probably should. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel, which was wrapped around his waist or which with he was girded. So if you want something to follow this year, these are the verses to follow. Jesus, knowing he was the greatest guy, powerful guy in the room, he had all the reasons to do whatever he wanted to do in a room full of people that would betray him and deny him and forsake him. He gets up from the table. He takes out his outer, off his outer garments. He wraps himself with a servant's towel. He removes his glory, clothes himself in humility or with humility. He debases himself, humiliates himself by washing their feet. And down in verse 12, he explains himself as if we needed him to, and they needed him to, so we probably need him to. So when he washed their feet and taken his garments back, he sat down again and he said to them, do you know what I have done for you or done to you? They hadn't, they didn't know, because how could they? You call me teacher and Lord and you do well, you say well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Again, washing feet in this culture was the lowest of the low. It was the servants of servants task. It was what people did that had no place at the table. If then I, your Lord, have washed your feet, you ought to also wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. A lot of Christians know about this passage, but very few Christians do anything with this passage, myself included. In this moment, Jesus defines Christianity. He defines the Christian lifestyle as a way of service towards one another. 
doing unto others out of an overflow of Christ's unconditional sacrificial response to us, not our instinctual reaction to them. Do you see that? That the way of Christianity is doing unto others as an, out of an overflow of what God has done to us, not how we feel about them. I'm not saying you don't feel something about them. I'm not saying there isn't a reason to feel bad towards them or something difficult about them, but it's choosing to react, about, react to them from a different perspective. To simplify this even more, Jesus says our response toward everyone should be determined by his sacrificial act towards us, not our selfish reaction towards them. Do you see how, how much this will just tear down the walls that we have built around our life? See, we live in a reciprocal world. We live in a, you do this, I'll do that. You've been that way, I'll be this way kind of world. That's whatever human nature, that's what human nature is. Jesus says, I'm not saying that feeling's gonna go away. I'm just saying, I have given you a new perspective from which you should respond to everybody. Think about what Jesus did in this room. In a room full of sinners, users, deniers, betrayers, cowards, takers, thieves, adulterers, idolaters, and consumers. He gives them what they do not deserve and says to us, you do the same. So what does Jesus said that every Christian should make their resolution? What, what does Jesus say every Christian should, should make their lives about? Christians don't wait. Christians don't wait to give people what they deserve or earn. Christians give people exactly what they don't deserve and cannot earn. Thought the second, I thought the don't deserve part was hard. Then I wrote, cannot earn, and I felt even worse. Christians give people exactly what they don't deserve. I mean, think about how responsive we are to people. And when somebody says, hey, why'd you say that? Why'd you do that? We would say, well, they deserved it. They earned it. They put that coin in my machine, and I spit it out. I spit out what they earned. <laughs> There's that stuff in me that reacts, and I reacted the way you deserved me to react, or you earned a reaction for me. But the way of a Christian is to realize that nature is in us and to preemptively counter it by giving people exactly what they don't deserve and cannot ever earn, just like God did to us. Again, what does verse 14 say? You have called, if, you, if your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you ought to also wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. You should do as I have done. Isn't that what in line with Ephesians 4, 25? We are one another. We belong to one another. Therefore, speak truth to one another, even if they don't deserve it. Now, of course, all this crescendo is down to the end of this chapter where Jesus repeats himself, but also he clarifies himself. Down in verse 31, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. So that's a wordy way of Jesus saying, this that I've just shown you is the way my father is glorified the most. The demonstration at the washing of the feet, what that pointed to with the crucifixion, Jesus dying for others, this, he says, glorifies God. If you want to know what glorifies God, he says, I just showed you and I've given you a way into it, a way to participate in it. Little children, I shall not be with you any longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. So here's what he's saying. Guys, 
I am not going to be in the world to do this for everybody personally and hands-on. I'm about to go to the cross and do it for everyone spiritually, but not everybody's going to be at the cross and see what happens. You are going to see it, and you are going to experience the repercussions of it, and you are going to show the world how they're included in this story. Does that make sense? I'm about to leave, so if you guys do what I've done, the rest of the world will still get a, be able to see me and know me and feel me like you all have. A new commandment. Oh, another one? No, a new one. It replaces all the old ones. New, it's not the word next or neo. It's the word Kanye, which means a brand new model, a brand new covenant. A brand new that encompasses every other one. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, come on, we've heard it enough at this point. We don't even need to look. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, if you have love for one another. So there's that phrase again, one another. Uh, this is a single word in Greek. It speaks to how we are all part of the same whole, which is why the New Testament's favorite way of addressing us isn't separate individuals. It's as members of the same body. We are members of one another. You, you see, the idea, the idea here isn't, is that it's not enough just to not hate somebody. It's not enough to have no opinions about somebody. Jesus says, if you're, if you're mine... If you're his, if you're mine, we know what it's like to be accepted apart from what we are seeking or what we deserve. Jesus says, if you're mine, you've been rescued and repurposed and he commands us that we must love others as he has loved us. This shouldn't be unnatural or weird for us. This shouldn't be strange for us because if we know Jesus, we know love. And if we know love, we can't help but want to show that same love. And if we claim we know Jesus, if somebody claims they know Jesus, but they don't know love, and if they claim they know Jesus, but they don't show love, then maybe they don't know Jesus. Again, those are not my words. That's what John said. John, who wrote the book of John, wrote this. Beloved, let us, not, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. But John, have you heard that guy preach? He's so powerful, but he's so unloving. John would say, I don't care what he preaches or what he professes. He doesn't know God. John says it's conclusive. We love because he first loved us. So if you've been impacted by the love of God, you will, you will, you will, you will love others. So again, Christians, not only, we not only denounce hatred and denounce spitefulness and denounce bitterness, but Christians, we also must denounce indifference, carelessness. Does that make sense? Because if God's love, if God's love has made a difference in our hearts, we cannot be indifferent towards the world, but we'll want to love and make a difference. Like God has made a difference in our lives. So that's why all over the New Testament, we see this phrase, one another, coupled with so many synonyms in ways that flesh out what it means to love one another. Over a hundred times in the New Testament, Christians are commanded to love one another. 
And sometimes it's phrased alternatively. 16 times specifically, it says love one another. But other times you see things like this. Honor others above yourself. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Be like-minded towards one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Care for one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Submit to one another. Consider yourselves, uh, consider others better than yourselves. Look to the interest of one another. Bear with one another. Comfort one another. We also see things like exhort one another, stir up others to good works, show hospitality one, to one another, employ gifts to benefit one another. And we see these two a lot. Encourage one another, pray for one another. Think about the things that we can't do while striving to do these things. Whew, man. I mean, what can you not do while at the same time being encouraging to somebody and authentically praying for somebody. That suppresses some things in us, doesn't it? Suppresses some anger, suppresses some bitterness, suppresses the things that Ephesians was talking about. We also see that the New Testament commands us to not do a few things. Do not lie to one another. Do not judge one another. Do not bite and devour each other or you'll be destroyed. Do not be conceited or envies of each other. Do not slander, do not grumble against each other. But come on, what are some of our natural ways of reacting to people? The exact opposite of all those things, right? What's our nature? Well, if you don't mind me prodding, our nature is that we scrutinize, we pressure, we embarrass, we corner, we defeat, we shame, we exclude, we judge, we manipulate one another. Isn't that what we do? That's what we do. And we're pretty good at it, aren't we? Come on, how can we go about doing these things if we are followers of Jesus? We can't, we can't. We must love one another because we are members of one another. Again, Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. By this, they'll know that you're mine. So in 2022, let us make a collective resolution to do to one another as Jesus has done unto us. You've heard of the golden rule, do unto others as they would do to you, but hey, this is better. The platinum, right? This is the greater than gold. Do to one another as Jesus has done unto us. What if every Christian made this their New Year's resolution? What if just half of us did? What if every Christian made this her New Year's resolution? What if every Christian took seriously this like Jesus and Paul in the New Testament church did? You know what? We would see a ton of people come to Jesus as a result of our kindness towards them. What if Christians were just irrationally, unexplainably loving towards people that they did not have to be loving towards? Oh, we would see people saved by the day, by hundreds of uh, hundreds a day in our community. Imagine, imagine if we loved those we didn't have to or had reasons not to. Just imagine a world where you, where we love people that we don't have to, that we have reasons not to. We would see revival like never before. 
Revival is not waiting on churches to have powerful songs and powerful sermons. Revival is waiting on Christians to have powerful love for one another. God's work in us will be multiplied by the work he does through us. So we can practice doing this with our brothers and sisters in Christ because if we can start here, we can go there. But if we can't start here, we won't go there. So can we start making a goal to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and beyond that, loving everybody? You know, I preach this a couple times a year but because even the most loving Christian still has that old nature that springs up and convinces us, ah, oh, you don't have to do that. Why would you do that? They don't deserve it. They didn't earn it. But we are members of each other. So let's not just tell the world about Jesus. We should tell the world about Jesus, but let's not just tell the world. Let's show the world by making the world feel his love through us. Make it a goal to show somebody the love of God that does not deserve it and did not earn it from you. And maybe that did the exact opposite of earning it and deserving it from you. You will be surprised at the change you will see in the world. Don't take it from me. Take it from you. Because how did you get saved? Because Jesus did for you. Not what you deserve, not what you earned, but what you didn't deserve and what you couldn't earn. That's what saved you. And that's what will save everybody. I think Jesus knows what he's talking about. Thank y'all for being here tonight. May God bless us and may God inspire us to make this our resolution this year. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I preach this for me. I hope everybody else enjoyed it or appreciated it, but I preach this for me because my, my nature does not want to do this. As a pastor, I know my ministry is not indicative of how good I preach or how smart of a leader I am. My, my, my ministry is dependent on whether I love people or not not just people that are close to me and people that do good things for me. My, my ministry is dependent on how I love people that do not deserve it and did not earn it and will not ever earn it. So Lord, would you convince me that this is my priority this year? Would you convince me to suppress the nature in me that says I need to do what I feel like doing and choose love over everything else? Lord, bless this pe the people tonight use your word to inspire them. Use them to love your world one person at a time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.